to Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today I'm joined by Edgar Award winner, among other crime fiction accolades, Ellie Griffiths, to talk about Bleeding Heart Yard, her recently published crime fiction novel, actually published yesterday. Welcome to the podcast, Ellie. Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. I'm really thrilled. Um, Before we dig into Bleeding Heart Yard, I want to ask you about what can only be described as your crime fiction road to Damascus moment, walking across Titchwell Marsh in Norfolk. I mean, the shingles fell from your eyes. So I want you to talk about that. (laughs) I love that description. Yes. Well, so I um, uh, had written um, a few books before under my real name, which is Domenica de Rosa, which I know sounds completely made up, but is in fact my real name. Um, and uh, I was thinking of doing something else, but I wasn't sure, you know, what sort of thing I'd like to write. And I was walking across Titchwell Marsh, which is um, a marsh on the uh, the north coast of uh, Norfolk. I don't know if you know Norfolk, it's on the very far east of Britain. Um, it's very beautiful, loads of history, but, but lots of it's very flat. So you can imagine this sort of flat marshland and then you get uh, sand dunes and you get the sea. So I was with my husband, Andy, who's an archeologist. And as we walked across this marshland, um, the sort of uh, uh, paths across the marshland, he happened to say that prehistoric people thought marshland was sacred. Because it's neither land nor sea, but something in between, they thought of it as a bridge to the afterlife. Neither land nor sea, neither life nor death. Uh, An in-between place, a liminal zone. And and that's why you find bodies buried there, so-called bog bodies. It's it's to mark that boundary. And it's never happened to me before, but but immediately the plot of a book came into my head, uh, which became The Crossing Places. And I did see Dr. Ruth Galloway, forensic archaeologist, walking towards me out of the mist. And, and I almost feel embarrassed to say that because I teach creative writing and I'd never let my students get away with it. Anyway, so I'm walking out of the mist. But it did happen. She just did appear. And I thought I knew all about her. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about writer's mind, which I always think of as, uh, I think maybe as a syndrome. Uh, (laughs) I I read, I read your article in this week's crimereads.com and I encourage uh, everyone listening to read it as well. You wrote that you always wanted to set a crime fiction novel in London. And we should mention that you're now three series into your crime fiction writing uh, career. So, you know, you, you've been doing this for a while. (laughs) But you always wanted to set one in London. And you talk about the actual location of Bleeding Heart Yard, which I actually just visited a couple of weeks ago. Oh, fantastic. And after reading your book and uh, how you and your lunchmates uh, figured it would be a great title for a book. And so that made me think of a writer's mind, sort of that mysterious, wonderful filing system where these things get put away for the right time. So talk about that, if you don't mind. That's so true, isn't it? And there's certain things that you know, you know, you're going to come back to, as you said, they're sort of filed away. So, yes, so I was having lunch with some of my old colleagues from HarperCollins, because I used to be an editor at HarperCollins, and we've kept in touch. And we have sort of um, 
yearly lunches. Um, but this was before COVID, before lockdown. And uh, my friend Paul often organises them just because he's the most organised. And when he gave us a selection of places, one of them was Bleeding Heart Yard. And I said, oh, we've got to go there. And actually, it's a lovely restaurant. This is my other tip. You know, I don't know if anyone wants tips from me, but this is what I'm going to give. Always set your books in a place with a nice restaurant. So it's very easy for your publishers to treat you. So, um, yes, yeah, so there was a nice restaurant there. Uh, and I just thought, oh, you know, this is a great um, a great title for a book, really. I've kind of got to have the plot to go with it, which is a bit what you were saying, isn't it? You've got the place. And, and although kind of in daylight, uh, the real Bleeding Heart Yard is not very spooky. It's a little courtyard, cobbled courtyard in, in, um, in the middle of London, near London Bridge Station. But, you know, it's near the, the, the Italian Quarter. It's, it's, it's mentioned in Little Dorrit. There was a grisly murder there in the 1700s. So it's a pretty good place for a book. So I just needed the story to go with it, really. Yeah. But what, what was interesting about it is it's t- entirely enclosed Yes. Um, it's it's really, uh, in the modern world, it would be a cul-de-sac. But here it's just this enclosed, cobbled courtyard and, and uh, very, very evocative and an excellent title and a great location. And we, but I want to jump ahead to the book because we really should talk about Bleeding Heart Yard. And, and there's nothing like a high school reunion to trigger <laughs> old rivalries and unearth buried traumas. And that's very much the case in in Bleeding Heart Yard's story. So when she was in high school, Cassie Fitzherbert and her friends were, according to Cassie's memories, complicit in the death of a fellow student. And the first twist is that how Cassie's now a police officer. And when a former classmate dies at the reunion, Cassie is literally the first officer on the scene. And I think that's just a fantastic entry into a story. So... Could you please talk about that? Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. Um, yes, and the sort of first line did come to me, which is Cassie saying, um, is it possible to forget that you've uh, committed a murder? Um, but I guess the second thing that, that made this book come to life for me first of all what first one was bleeding heart yard and having having lunch there looking at it and thinking this has got to come into a book and the second was going to my old school reunion um i have to say that um no murders occurred. I went to a very big comprehensive school and I know British schools are so confusing because when we say public school, we mean absolutely the opposite. We mean a school that only a few people can go to if you can pay a lot of money. Um, but my school was really a public school and that anyone could go. Um, and it's the same, the, the school in the story is the same. Although it's in a very posh part of London, which means it does attract a certain clientele. But you know, no murders happened at my um, uh, reunion. But I did get to talk to people about our memories of school and and they're all so different and, and your memories of each other are so different and some people you could guess what they were going to go on to do and some people you absolutely couldn't um, and it did strike me uh, I, I met up with it with this this man really nice guy who had been at school with me and he said to me oh yes I remember you and your you and Angela, you and your friend Angela, I was in your French class and you always used to put your bag there where I'd trip up on it. And I said, no, we didn't do that. And he said, you did and you'd laugh. And I spoke to Angela, I'm still friends with Angela. And I said, we didn't do that, did we? And she said, of course not. But all those years, this guy had thought that we were the mean girls, you know, that we had been sitting in the back of the French class and Angela was very good at French. I wasn't, but I think I was in an aura of good at Frenchness coming from Angela. So we seemed the two who were really good at French. We were laughing at him. And I thought, wow, that's so 
awful, really, that, that he thought that all these years, but it did make me think about what we remember and what we remember about us. So that was the second starting point for the book, really. And we should mention that the victim of the murder at the reunion isn't just anyone. So this is a school class, as you mentioned, it's a comprehensive, but in a very fancy neighborhood. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. We have similar public schools, which are public, uh, yes. that are just in very fancy neighborhoods and very fancy people go there. So this is a school class in your book that produced a number of famous and accomplished people. Garfield Rice, who is a controversial climate change denying MP, winds up dead, apparently from a drug overdose. So I, I found that just, you know, like, I would think the list of people from a left-leaning uh, comprehensive school would be endless, but it, it, it's an intriguing thing that you killed him. Yes, yes, uh, he, he winds up dead at the reunion. And I was, again, interested in the fact because at school, they all look back to the school days when they were part of this little group, this little gang of friends, and, and Garfield Gary, as they call him, as you would call yourself, um, was, was fairly left-wing then. And, you know, you don't have to look far for an example of this. Uh, 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 very, very briefly, the UK had a Prime Minister called Liz Truss. Very brief. But I was there when she yeah, was right, You were there because, you know, you would blink and you miss it, but it did happen. Um, and, and at school, she was, and at university, she was very left-wing and, and was a Republican and in the British sense, in, in sort of anti-monarchy sense, and, and then was leader of the Conservative Party. So, that's the other interesting thing is you can't remember how you can't work out how people ended up where, where they do end up. So, yes, yeah, so Gary was a left wing at school, becomes an MP, but becomes a very right wing MP and also a climate change denier. And um, th there's a link to uh, Bleeding Heart Yard because he his wife um, says that he's received these notes calling him a bleeding heart, like a bleeding heart liberal. And, and they seem to link back to a mysterious dining club at Bleeding Heart Yard, where these very right wing sort of MPs and businessmen actually have talks on um, climate change, which they know happens, but they know but for the sake of business interest, they are denying it. So that's another link and, and, and is, you know, a, a pretty much a, a motive for some people at the school to think about killing him. Yes, I would think that would be a long list. But the second twist is that Cassie's boss, D.I. Harbinder, and please correct me if I'm mispronouncing her name, Harbinder Carr, who's recently moved to London, is put in charge of the case. And I love D.I. Carr. I love her. Oh, good. Because like many women who are climbing their profession's ladder, she wrestles with imposter syndrome. You know, she has confidence in her abilities, but she just can't help second guessing herself. You know, she loves to be called boss, but she's like, <laughs> really, are they saying that to me? Uh, she's, you know, she's uh, a gay woman. She's comfortable with her sexuality, but at the same time has never introduced a girlfriend to her conservative parents. So, and, and, and we're going to talk about this in a little while. She's also was in your previous book. So yeah. let's talk about her. I'm so glad you like her. Um, yes, she did. So she appeared in the first, my first ever standalone, and it will become clear that I'm not very good at standalones. Was, was oh, that thought. <laughs> was The Stranger Diaries, which is a kind of modern Gothic uh, story in, in which a, a woman is found dead in a way that seems to echo a Victorian ghost story. And, and when the murder happens, the police have to investigate it. And 
the door opens and in comes Harbindas. That's kind of the first time I encountered her, really. And uh, I think the first thing she says is something like, um, oh, let's assume I'm in charge. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And and she sort of, you know, th then she sort of fleshed herself out as a character. As you said, she's from a British Indian family. Her, her parents are Sikh. Um, she's gay. She still lives at, low, at home with her parents in, in that book. Um, and I thought she was an interesting character. Which is quite acerbic, which makes a lot of fun to write. But I wondered whether people would like her. But when the book came out, people really liked her. So in the second, so my second standalone was called <laughs> the Postscript Murders, and it's a kind of slightly lighter story, uh, which involves a sort of road trip and deaths that, that echo um, uh, crime novels. Uh, and Harbinder again pops up as the detective. So I guess this is the third time, uh, and I'm not seeing them as a series. Uh, the author. Um, Sophie Hannah, I'm sure you've interviewed her. She calls her books link detached, like houses are sometimes link detached. So that's the word I suppose I'm going for. So in um, Bleeding Heart Yard, uh, I thought I'd give Harbinder a chance to move to London, a promotion. She's been promoted, she moves to London, and it's a different life for her. She shares a flat, just um, two housemates. She has this job and she's, as you said, I'm, I'm so glad that came over. So I want to make her confident in, in her work. But of course, she does um, face sort of implicit racism and sexism in, in the Met. And uh, she does sometimes, you know, wonder what she's doing here, solving the case, but she absolutely is, you know, um, up to it in every way. Well, now I'm going to tell you just a little aside um, that this reminds me of. It reminds me of <clears throat> actually of Karen Peary. Um, <clears throat> I interviewed Val McDermott when Skeleton Road was published and I asked her because it was the third time Karen had made an appearance if it was a series and she talk about a cervic. She told me to bite my tongue. <laughs> uh, and she told me, she said, uh, she said, I didn't think, I don't think so. No, it's not a series. I have series. Um, I interviewed her for Broken Ground. And I said, okay, this is like the sixth book. Is it a series? <laughs> and she said, yes, damn it. It's a series. Do, do you know that is so funny? Because when I wrote um, Stranger Diaries, I sent a copy to Val because Val's always been really, really supportive to me and, and lovely as she is to, as you know, lots of debut authors. So I sent her a copy and she, and she was lo lovely about it. She rang off and she said, I love this book. She said, you're going to have, is Habinda going to be in another book? And I said, no, no, it's a standalone. She said, oh, she said, uh, she'll want to be in another book. So that was, isn't that funny? Because she maybe remembered the conversation with you. I don't know. But, and so now I have had to say to her, you know, as she's had to say to you, you know, you were right. There, there is a series. So, uh, yeah, that's so funny. What a nice link. Well, the characters do stick in your mind. I also spoke to Louise Welsh about her character that was in the cutting room and then in the second cut. And she just said there are just, as you said, there are characters that want to be heard from. Um, and, and thank you for that as a reader. So thank you very much. But so as the case per in Bleeding Heart Yard progresses, someone else who attended uh, the reunion, and we're not going to introduce any spoilers here, and who was involved in the death of the group's friend classmate way back when, is murdered in Bleeding Heart Yard. And so is there a serial killer? I mean, all these things are sort of going through uh, a Detective Inspector Carr's mind. You know, what the heck is going on with these crazy kids? <laughs> yes, um, the plot thickens. Um, <laughs> 
and I did want to make it twisty, you know, twisty and and uh, and and have these moments where we're not quite sure what's going on, and she's not sure. She's um, she knows somehow that there is a link to this this death that happened uh, when when the the group were at school, and and they believe that they've killed someone. So she knows that that's possibly the link. But um, there there are hopefully a few other sort of uh, red herrings and uh, uh, blind alleys, rather like bleeding out yards of blind alley that you can go into. And there's a, a third narrator. Is, is um an advance who was at school with um with with the, the with Garfield Rice and with Cassie and she has a different view of it as well so sort of slightly an outsider's view of it so I did really enjoy telling it from three perspectives as well well that I think that's one of the the attractive things about reading this book was <clears throat> this layer of the idea of memory among among different among a group as you mentioned uh, your experience with your friend Angela and the boy who said, but you trip me every day. That it, it's, and, and you tell Bleeding Heart Yard from multiple points of view. So we get this idea of memory, collective memory, individual memory. Um, there's also, there's gaslighting and there's, there's, is it a real memory? Is it, a, is it, did this really happen? And so I, I asked this question of, of writers who write from multiple angles and the idea of, of who is the unreliable narrator, how a writer executes something like this. Like for instance, did you take all of Cassie's narrative and write that and then all of Harbinger's uh, narrative and then write that and then sort of splice and dice or did you write it in a linear fashion? I know it's a bit of a craft question, but it intrigues me and this is my podcast. It intrigues me too. And what I love about uh, these sort of questions is the fact that everyone works differently. I and mean, I just love that about writing. I did uh, um, an event last night at Murder by the Book with uh, a great friend of mine, a great writer, uh, Claire McIntosh. And it was the first time we talked about a process and it was so different. We were so fascinated with each other, really. Uh, so I hope it was fascinating to the audience. But I'm very, I'm a very sort of linear writer, really. So I start at the beginning, I go to the end. I used to make notes, like I used to have a sort of chapter plan. But Stranger Diaries was about five years ago. Um, that was my probably my most complicated plot. And I didn't write anything down. I had it all in my head. And it kind of worked for me. And I think not writing it down made it a little richer, made it a little less linear, you know, a little less this happens and this happens and this happens. So since then, I haven't ever, ever had a written uh, plan. So it is there in my head, but it's sort of evolving as you go along. So I couldn't write in any other way. So I start at the beginning. I'm not quite sure who's going to lead the next chapter, what's going to happen in the next chapter. So I sort of do it like that. And, and in a way, I guess that keeps it fresh and interesting for me because I was trying to see, I was... I was might have been in the top French group at school, but I was in the bottom maths group. So I can't actually remember which number book of this of mine this is. I think it might be 29. And so anyhow, I've written a few books. So it, it, it keeps it fresh for me to have that thing about, you know, someone knocks the door. Who is it? What's happening? Um, you know, though I have a sort of sense of what's going on, it's keeping it keeping it fresh for me that that works. So I, I just start at the beginning, go to the end, not quite sure who has the next point of view, uh, and and I do only kind of do one draft. Um, so something again that Claire and I were so different in, uh, but I do change it as I go along. So that there will be, I think, oh maybe this should go there. And that. So I do kind of change it up as I go along, but really I'm very much a 
I start at the beginning, get to the end, sort of right. <laughs> With, without an outline. Without an outline, no, without a written outline. Something in my head, and I go over it in my head, um, you know, quite a lot before it gets to the page. Um, but but yes, yeah, it keeps keeps it fun. <laughs> There's a really good quote. Um, Oh, I think it's E.L. Dr. Rowan. He says, writing like that is like uh, driving in the dark with your headlights on. You can only see a bit of the road in front, but you can make the whole journey like that. Um, and, and that has really stuck in my head, really, um, that you, you, it doesn't matter if you can't see the whole way. It's quite fun. Well, I think another thing that might happen with writers who, who have that linear uh, journey towards the end of their story is, that characters, which are very real in a writer's head, can do surprising things. Yes. And if there's an outline, sometimes you might want to say to the character, wait a minute, you're yes. not supposed to do that. So you're and that can cause an argument. Chapter 10, yeah. And, and that won't be pleasant. At the end of your CryingReads.com article, you write that you'd like to dig deeper into the ghost London beneath our feet. So you've you know, you've also pointed out that London is an ancient city and they're quite literally layered. And we've talked about the layered nature of Bleeding Heart Yard. Although it was burned, London was burned down in 61 AD and it was, but it was back by 100 AD and sort of never stopped going from 60,000 uh, population uh, when it was the capital of Roman Britain to about 9 million now. So is this going to be your next location for your next book? And is Detective Inspector Carr going to be there? And uh, anything you can tell us, Ms. Griffiths? Uh, well, that was a great teaser. I'm so glad you noticed it. Um, yes. Well, I mean, London is is a really fascinating city, I think. And, you know, it does have all these layers. And uh, as I was saying earlier, my husband's an archaeologist. So he's kind of been involved with the Crossrail project and all these uh, archaeological digs there. Because you do forget, because on the surface, especially now, you know, the last sort of 10, 20 years, all these amazing sort of glittery glass skyscrapers have sprung up in London. But, you know, deep down, it's a Roman city. It burnt down again in the 1660s, but, but it's been built up again. So it's, it's Victorian. It's Tudor, it's Roman, it's Bronze Age. So there's loads of it. Well, really, um, I would like to write a whole other series set in London. That is sort of what I was hinting at there. I mean, I'm pretty sure Habenda will appear again in one of her linked attached. Uh, but I was thinking more, I was thinking of a, of a different sort of series, maybe, and this is very um, just sort of in my head at the moment, but maybe even a proper historical series, you know, something like that, because I think you might know, so my next Ruth book is Ruth 15, The Last Remains, and I've said it's going to be the last Ruth book for a little while, I'm going to have a little break in writing the Ruth book, so uh, I, I might quite like to write something else. Well, you, did, you also mentioned another one of my favourite writers, Christopher Fowler, and how he okay. has taken London with uh, Bryant and May and, and uh, you know, Arthur Bryant is a repository of, of all things London. And it's yes, he's probable, a wonderful character. Wonderful character. And it's probable that we won't see another book, which is mm -hmm. um, a shame on yeah. so many levels. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, I would mark down things and go on little walks when I go to London to, to sort of look over that and, and, and I did the same with your book. You know, I said, oh, oh, I, know, I know Bleeding Heart Yard. I kind of know it's it's near Hatton Garden. It's kind of, I, yeah. you know, 
Uh, but I don't think I've ever been there. And I think, uh, and I think that's a wonderful, that's one of the wonderful things about crime fiction is that you can talk about these crimes, but you can sneak in all these little geographical, historical points. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So it is, it's, a, uh, it's a, something I love about crime fiction too. And actually this weekend, I'm going on a walking tour of London led by uh, A.K. Turner, who I, mentioned in the article she writes a really good series about um, a mortuary attendant in in Camden but she's an actual London guide so she has this guy this tour called troublesome women and my daughter and I are going to do it at the weekend so I just love that don't you I love um looking at somewhere with new eyes and you know looking at um you know you see Andy my husband will do this quite often he'll look at a wall and he'll see an area that has little thin bricks and he'll know those are Roman bricks and that's a kind of Roman layer. And I just love that. So I'm sure Ali, her name's Ali, is, is going to do um, a great tour this weekend. So, yeah, so if you, if you're, when next time you're in London, I'll give you her website. Sign up to one of her tours. Reading your book before I went made, uh, it just uh, made my trip that much better. I'm so glad. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I was well, born in London and uh, lived there till I was five. And then my family moved away, but I was went back to university there. So I kind of do know it quite well. And there's lots of family history there for me because my parents are immigrants from, from my, my grandparents were immigrants from Italy and they lived in, in Barby Road, which is the road that Harbinder lives in. So lots of personal layers too. Well, writers get to do wonderful things with their memories and with locations. And you've done just a crackerjack job. I Thank enjoyed you. the book a great deal. And I look forward hopefully, to talking to you next time for your next book. I'd love that. Well, until then, Ellie, thank you for your time and for talking to us about Bleeding Heart Yard. Congratulations on its publication. And until next time. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.